Amen. It is a great honor to be able to share with you this morning, to be able to celebrate the Lord and his faithfulness, and thank you to the choir for all of their preparation to be able to share with us this morning as well. Uh, welcome to our homecoming service. Oh, actually, I'm supposed to dismiss the children to Children's Church. If there are any kids that have not already made their way that direction, you see Miss Amy to my left and your right, and uh, the kids will be dismissed at this time to Children's Church. It is great to have each of you with us this week for homecoming. There have been many things that have gone uh, into this church being where it is today. And the vast majority of those things occurred well before I arrived at this church. We have been blessed with incredible pastors, missionaries, and godly parishioners who have poured their lives into the kingdom through the ministry of Trinity Wesleyan Church. We have also simply been the recipient of God's blessing throughout as he has poured out his spirit upon this church. But we cannot take for granted the people who have helped to shape this church. In fact, often we look at the pastors as those who somehow have need of recognition for what happens in the church. But sometimes it's people behind the scenes that really deserve all the credit. Today, we want to take the time to celebrate one such individual, actually kind of two. In 1976, Pastor James Wiggins and his wife Lois came to this church to serve as the pastoral family. They had previously served as missionaries in Sierra Leone, West Africa, for nine years and would become, and this would become a place of transition, but also in many ways it would become a place of completion. This would not merely be a place to ease their family back into the American lifestyle, although certainly that would occur. But rather, this would become the place that they would settle in and faithfully serve for nearly two decades of full-time ministry. And I think that it's fair to say that some of the best days of this church occurred directly as a result of the Wiggins family ministry. But as I previously stated, it would be foolish to give all the credit to the pastor. For sure, Pastor Wiggins did a great job. In fact, I was able to see some of that as I was a college student here during that time period. But there was a woman who stood behind him that also deserves much of that credit. Lois Wiggins was faithful to love on whomever she came in contact with. In fact, the things that I'm about to share about today were not limited to when her husband was the pastor of the church. Lois did these things as long as she was physically able. As a model of righteousness to her family and anybody else who was watching, she faithfully managed her home. She visited the sick and grieving with her husband, Jim. She spent time in many homes. She served well as a part of what was called our Stevens ministry, helping those who were struggling through grief and hardship. And even in her later years, she spent much time writing cards and making phone calls to anyone whom she thought needed a word of encouragement. Another thing that she did was to pray for other people. 
She was a longtime member of our Friday morning prayer group that met over in this hallway every week. But it's more than just a corporate prayer that she offered. My guess is that many of you were prayed for by her and you probably didn't even know it. And that's because she didn't do it for show. I can remember multiple visits where I, as her pastor, would ask if I could pray for her. And as I was wrapping up the prayer time, she would break in and begin to pray for myself and for others whom we had discussed during our visit. Oh, how I miss the prayers of Lois Wiggins. And Jim can attest, Jim Wiggins can attest to the fact that this was simply a way of life for Lois as she prayed for people every time she got the chance. One of the things that always impressed me was the fact that she never stopped longing for more in her walk with Christ. Even in the last few years, she and her husband would faithfully participate in our Bible studies that occur either on Sunday night or Wednesday night. As long as they were able to be there, they were there. And it always impressed me to look over and see Lois taking notes. That may sound really silly that that would even draw my attention, but the reality is she had known the Lord probably longer than I had been alive. She knew the word incredibly well, but she wasn't satisfied. She wanted to know more. There was certainly never a sense of arrogance, thinking that she had somehow arrived. Instead, she still wanted to grow. But for me, perhaps the greatest thing that she did was in the area of discipleship. She was committed to making sure that individuals who came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior were then able to grow in their faith. She would choose to walk alongside them on that journey, not just telling them, but showing them what it was to be a child of God. And I would venture to say that much of the spiritual depth that developed in this particular church was at least partially the result of her faithful labors. In addition, I've spoken to Sunday school teachers who first discovered their foundational faith through her discipleship ministry. My guess is that every church pastor wishes they had a hundred or so Lois Wigginses. I've often wondered at what I want people to remember me as. A great preacher, maybe a loving pastor, maybe a good dad. All of those things would be good and admirable. But maybe the thing that all of us ought to strive for, to be remembered as, is what we've seen in Lois Wiggins. She was a faithful servant to the Lord and to the church who consistently made disciples and she made a difference everywhere that she went. Later today, we'll have a lunch around one o'clock and at that lunch, we'll also be rededicating a library over in the Family Life Center. Many years ago, prior to my arrival here at Trinity, that library was dedicated in memory of a wonderful, godly lady named Betty Spearman. This was an opportunity to not only memorialize a godly woman of influence, but to invest in the ongoing work of Christ here at Trinity Wesleyan Church. Since then, 
That room has been used for so many different ministries, hosting small groups, board meetings, youth group functions, Sunday school classes, as well as simply being a nice place to escape for a quiet study. I confess that on multiple occasions, I have parked my vehicle so that nobody could see that I was here. And then I have snuck into that library as a place to study and not be disturbed. Well, the family of Betty Spearman, several of whom typically attend our second service, graciously approached me several months ago, suggesting that that library be rededicated in memory of Lois Wiggins. After talking with both families, the decision was made to not have it named after only one of these great ladies, but rather to have it dedicated in honor and in memory of both of these great ladies. So as of this afternoon, it will be identified as the Betty Spearman Lois Wiggins Library. In fact, this is the plaque that will be on the wall in there. But I also want to give you the chance to express your love and appreciation for Lois Wiggins. If you had an experience with her, if she influenced your life, I want to give you the opportunity to express that to the family. Especially, my goal would be that the family remains would be encouraged by that. I know many of you likely did this around the funeral time, but uh, it was a little over a year ago, but perhaps Lois Wiggins specifically impacted your life. I want you to be able to share that. A table was set up this morning as you came in in our foyer, and it will be over in the other building later in the day. But on that table, there is a journal, and I am inviting you to go and to record something in the journal regarding how Lois Wiggins has touched your life. If you'd rather just speak directly to the family, you're welcome to do so. But this journal could serve as something that the family will be able to look back on in the years to come as they constantly live in celebration of the godly example that they have seen from Lois Wiggins. So I invite you to take advantage of that. Sometime today, go and find that journal and just write a, a memory or a note of appreciation. To Pastor Wiggins and to the rest of the family, I cannot adequately express how much I appreciate how much I appreciated the influence of Lois upon this church. No matter how many great things are in store for the church in the future, there is no question that without Lois's love, faithfulness, and discipleship, that this church would not be where we are today. Thank you for loaning her to us for so long. But today is not just about Lois Wiggins. I want to take some time to dig into the word. And as we do so, this is a passage that I believe that Lois would have very much appreciated, maybe even more so today. I want to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to that passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, and today I'll begin reading in verse 3. I think in your sermon bulletin it says verse 5, but I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to share a couple extra verses. This is the final sermon in a series that we've been going through that explores the passion and the purpose of a New Testament church. 
So far, we've looked at what they were devoted to. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to fellowship, and to prayer. We looked at what they were empowered by, being filled with a supercharged spirit that restored that which was previously dead. We're talking about the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. We talked about what they lived for, as Colby shared last week, getting as many other people ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And today, I want you to see that the New Testament church was one that always kept their eyes on the prize. But before I read this passage, let me share one last thing with you. Earlier in this series, I had an individual who is relatively new to the church approach me. He's probably been attending the church for about three months now. He asked, how would you describe the pulse of the church today? It's great that we can look back on the move of God over the last 20, 30, 40 years. But how would you describe the pulse of the church today? What he was asking is, is the church thriving or is it on life support? Is the church hungry and ready to grow spiritually? Or are we just barely hanging on? Are we perhaps even just along for the ride? Now, clearly, as a pastor, I want to be able to answer that the church is on fire. I want us to be filled with people who have that supercharged infilling of the Holy Spirit that causes us to be transformed and always seeking more and more of Jesus. I want us to be very much like the lady that I described to you already this morning, always seeking to know Christ more and always seeking to bring others along in the journey. But that doesn't happen by accident. That happens by choice. That happens when God's people fix their eyes on what lies ahead rather than becoming so fixated on what we want or what others have done. It happens when we fix our hearts on God's plan rather than our own plan. Now let me read this to you. Beginning in verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Great truth here. You see a heart of celebration, but you have a heart of anticipation as well. I spoke this week with some Clemson police officers, asking them why they chose to become police officers. I realize that not everyone will answer the same way as their minds work differently. One admitted that he wanted to become an officer so that he could drive fast and not get in trouble for it. Another shared about those who had helped his family when he was younger, and he wanted to do the same for others. One said he loved this community, and he wanted to make it a better place. Another shared that he just always wanted to help people 
who may be hurting. I then asked the same follow-up question to each of those officers. Is it what you expected? Unanimously, all four of the officers that I spoke with said very quickly, no. <laughs> In some ways, the job brings things that are more difficult than expected. In other ways, the job brings things that are better than expected. But regardless of the expectation, they know what they are doing matters. They're making a difference. In a similar manner, the New Testament church was filled with individuals who had entered into a new type of birth, a new birth. They had chosen a new path that not everyone would have chosen. And with this new birth, it would bring with it both difficulty and blessing, but it would no doubt be worth it in the end. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that the only way to new birth is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is only by his great mercy, according to this passage, that any of us can receive this living hope. And this living hope includes what happens here today. The transformed lives that we live in this lifetime. But it also includes the eternal inheritance that awaits us in heaven. In fact, this passage says that it will never perish, spoil, or fade. So the next few verses help us to dig deeper into this. Starting in verse 5, look at it. This is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, and this is verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. I will tell you, I'm reading today from the New Living Translation. That's partially because that's what I read in my devotional time typically. I refer to this as the Bible for dummies. It's easy for anybody to understand. That's why I choose to use this today. The first part of this passage says that God's power is shielding us. And I promise to come back to that in just a moment. But first, I ask you, what was the New Testament church focused on? As we've looked at all of these verses so far, what do we see the church focused on? While God's power is shielding us from something worse, the church focused on the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what they're focused on. And it's not just in this moment. It's not just because we think the end is drawing near, which I do believe today that it is drawing near. We're talking about 2,000 years ago. They were already focused on the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. When someone is saved, when the individual comes to know Jesus in a personal way, the person is wonderfully and miraculously made new. That's the new birth that I mentioned earlier. 
Though the question remains, is that all there is to salvation? Is it a one-and-done work in our lives? And the answer is no. Salvation is not only a past event in the life of a believer, although sometimes we, even as the church, talk like it is. There is a moment in time when a person moves from being lost to being found, being separated from God because of sin to being reconciled to God through our faith. For me, that moment was in August of 1990, when as a teenager, I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. Have you had an event like that in your life, where you responded in faith to Jesus Christ? That is the moment that you were born again, and in many ways, that is the moment where salvation began. At that moment, you were made right with God. But we must realize that the past event of our salvation is not the end of God's work. Salvation has a present tense as well. For true followers of Christ, God is constantly working to mature us so that we look and act and love more like Jesus Christ. This is what we call sanctification, the process by which the Spirit of God transforms our lives in the present. Consider the words of 2 Corinthians 3.18, which says, And we all are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Or consider the words of Joshua 3.5, where the people are instructed to sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. The reality is that the act of sanctification is a process, but it is an intentional process. As believers, we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It is an ongoing process, a lifelong process. As long as we breathe on this earth, The Spirit of God is working in us to grow us in the Lord. This is the present tense aspect of salvation. But the argument could be made that the best is still yet to come. Salvation also has a future tense. One day, when this life comes to an end, we will step into the presence of Jesus Christ And the culmination of our salvation will become a reality. Salvation will be revealed as the scripture passage today says. We will leave our sin nature behind. We will leave our heartbreaks and our headaches behind. We will experience glorification. And this is the future tense of salvation. So if you know the Lord in a personal way, and my hope today is that every one of you does, then the reality of your salvation in the past leads to the growing of your salvation in the present and ultimately the fullness of your salvation to come in the future. Salvation is past, present, and future for believers in Jesus Christ. I wonder if the church still knows that. 
we act as if we just want to get people to the moment of surrender where they pray some prayer. But the reality is God doesn't want us to just say some magic prayer. God wants our lives to be changed. God wants our hearts to be changed. He wants eternity to be a fellowship between us and him. Unfortunately, the reality is that until we get to heaven, until the future side of salvation is revealed, we will still have to deal with a whole lot of junk, and the New Testament church knew it. For many, we may be like those officers who collectively agreed that sometimes this is not what we signed up for. We picture the eternal inheritance that is to come, and it's almost as if we expect that all we'll get is good things in this life too. We see somebody who has good things, and we think God must really be blessing them, which we like the sound of that. But if we're getting bad things, does that mean that God must really be cursing us instead? Does salvation mean that everything will be good in our lives? As we look at verse 6, I also want to go back to where we began in verse 5. I'll read it to you again. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power. Do you ever feel like this world is just too much for you to handle? I know that there have been many times that I have. Sometimes it's because of our own foolish choices. Sometimes it's because of the foolish choices of others. Sometimes it's just because we live in a fallen world. But the result is that all the junk can sometimes feel too big for me. But according to this verse, we who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ are shielded by God's power. Now, does that mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us? Of course not. I've spoken with multiple individuals this week who were abused as children, too. Was God not shielding them in their childhood? I've talked with a grieving family that was preparing to say goodbye to their loved one, and since he has passed away, has God not been shielding them? I've talked with others who are dealing with cancer or other health issues. Is God not shielding them? I also talked with one who lost his job recently. Has God not been shielding him? And even in today's passage, in verse 6, we read that now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Has God's power not been shielding them from their grief in all kinds of trials? The answer to each of these questions is yes, God's power is still shielding them. But the presence of God's power does not mean that we will never have to deal with hardship. It simply means that we won't have to handle it on our own. God will be with us. In addition, one of the other thoughts that comes to my mind with this is that God's presence, it is God's presence that keeps things from being worse than they currently are. Sometimes we think a situation can't get any worse than what we've already experienced, only to find out later that it absolutely can get worse. 
be grateful for God's power that has kept things from getting worse. The scriptures speak often about bad things happening to good people, godly people, and how God can use those things for good. And it is likely that all of us have seen it happen. You remember the story of Joseph, where Joseph had been sold into slavery by his own brothers. And in Genesis 50, verse 20, as his brothers have now come to Egypt and Joseph is in a position of authority and blessing, and he has certainly experienced the goodness of God in the midst of all the difficulty along the way. In Genesis 50, 20, he says to his brothers, the things you intended to harm me, God intended for good. Yes, we'll have to go through difficulty, but God can use those things to do good. Think about it. How has God changed you, helped you develop? through some type of hardship? How has God used hardship to help somebody else rejoice over that? This is what's talked about in our passage today. Today's junk is an opportunity for you to be a living testimony to the rest of the world. It's easy to praise the Lord in the midst of blessing. It's easy to remain faithful when everything is good in your life. In fact, that was the argument from Satan regarding Job. You remember that? Listen to the encounter between God and Satan as recorded in Job chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Let me just stop and say, man, I hope that one day the Lord will be able to brag on me. Maybe not to Satan where it ends up in this challenge. But I want to be that kind of man, and I hope that's your prayer as well. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The idea is, of course he's faithful, because everything's good in his life. But take away all that prosperity, all that goodness, he'll turn his back on the Lord. But he didn't. After losing everything, we read at the end of Job chapter 1. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground. Listen to this, to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And what happens is that in keeping with today's passage, our response to hardship serves as an opportunity to praise the Lord. Sure, there will be those who will do whatever they can to kick us while we're down. In Job's case, he had three, I'll call them friends because that's what it says in Scripture. They weren't good friends. He had three friends who constantly blamed him for his suffering. 
and even encouraged him to go ahead and curse God and die. He had another young man named Elihu who in his self-righteousness rebukes Job from chapters 32 through 37, mixing spiritual truth with his own opinion and then giving credit to the spirit within him. Yet Job had done nothing wrong. But while there will be those who want to kick us while we're down, there will also be those who will see our response to suffering, and it will result in praise, glory, and honor to the Lord. Now, I want to get back to our original passage for a few moments back in 1 Peter chapter 1. I told you earlier that in regard to salvation, that the best is still yet to come, and that is absolutely true. But there are actually two elements to salvation that are highlighted in this passage. Look first in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. As Peter writes this, he speaks as if he knows the hearts of those receiving it. He says that I, I know you haven't seen him but you do love him. The him, we're talking about Jesus. Well, how does Peter know that they love him? I suggest to you that there are two ways that Peter would have known that already. The first is obedience. Jesus had said, if you love me, you will obey what I have commanded. It is likely that Peter's original audience had chosen a life of obedience to the Lord. They had never seen him face to face, but they still obeyed what Jesus had taught. In fact, this leads to the other thing that revealed their love for God. Listen to 2 John chapter 1, verse 6. Love means doing what God has commanded us, and he has commanded us to love one another, just as you heard from the beginning. So the first part of this is what we've already talked about. If you love me, you will obey what I have commanded. But then John adds that true obedience will also include a love for one another. Jesus said that whatever we've done for one of the least of these, whether it's somebody who is hungry, someone who is sick, or someone who is in prison, you have also done it unto me. He's saying that if you really love me, you will also love the hurting people around you. It is safe to assume that Peter references their love for Jesus. As he does so, he has already witnessed their love in action. They are loving for today. I wonder if people looked at your life, would it be clear to them how much you love Jesus because of the way you have lived and the way you have loved Would people look at you and say, that's what it is to be a child of God. I see it in them. I see people who simply want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. What we do today, what we experience in the present is all leading up to something even greater though. In verse 9, it talks about the end result of our faith, the saving of our souls. We live today so that tomorrow, when we reach the end, we will be able to hear, well done, 
good and faithful servant. The New Testament church loved today, but they lived for tomorrow. They always had heaven and the judgment of God in mind. It was as if they expected it to happen even in their own lifetimes, and they wanted to make sure that they were ready for it. What about you? Do you still expect the return of Jesus Christ and maybe even that it could happen in your own lifetime? Do you want to make sure that you are ready? I think a lot of us would say yes. But are you willing to live out that answer? We're talking about living for to, uh, loving for today and living for tomorrow. Yes, we want that. But are you willing to allow God to change everything about you so that if that day were to be tomorrow, or if that day were to be next week or next month or next year, even 20 years down the road, you will live in preparation for that day. Jesus tells multiple stories about individuals who were ready. I remember uh, one of the greatest songs I think that's ever been written. I know it was written before DC Talk did it, but it was a song entitled, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And I tell you the truth, I look forward. I remember watching a video, it was a great, powerful video, the pastor standing up preaching, and as he's preaching, all this is kind of running together. Sorry, my mind's racing in different directions here. First of all, Jesus told stories about being ready, whether it was the bridegroom that was coming, and the maids were either ready or they weren't. And Jesus told stories about basically the Lord coming at a time when no one expected him to come. And you had to be ready because you weren't really sure when he would come. If a thief came in the middle of the night, would you be prepared? If the Lord came at a time like that, would you be prepared? I remember hearing that song by DC Talk and thinking to myself, talks about one who is working in the field. By the way, this comes straight from Scripture. One is taken and the other one is left. Two people are lying down. One is taken and the other is left. And there's this idea that there is a day that is coming that the Lord will return. Do you believe the Lord will return? I remember watching a video, and actually in our Wednesday night Bible study, we recently uh, saw it from a different perspective on the second coming of Christ. But I remember watching this video, and the pastor standing up there preaching, and all of a sudden there is a flash of lightning. And suddenly about half the people in the church just disappear. We refer to that as the rapture. Do you believe that the Lord could come back at any moment? I believe that he could. I believe that he will. My question is, will you be ready? The image of that pastor standing up there preaching and about half the people disappearing it tells you about half of them stayed. There are probably many in the church who have talked about being ready. But if the Lord were to come back today, they're not ready. My challenge for you today is to make sure that you are ready. Live as if truly eternity could be around the very next corner. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, we are so grateful 
for the hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the promise that this world is not all that we have to look forward to. We see in the scripture repeatedly references to a new heaven and a new earth, a day that will come where the Son of Man will descend from heaven above, and even those who are dead already in Christ will rise up, and the rest of us will go and meet him in the air. We believe that there is a day that is coming where your Son will return. Lord, I pray that every individual in this room would be ready for that day. Lord, I pray that if even right now, if an individual in this room or one who is watching online is not ready to meet you, I pray that you would allow them the forgiveness of sins. You tell us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we will confess our sins, that you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, may we not wait for some day down the road to make things right with you. But right now, Lord, I pray that you would grant us forgiveness of sins so that if today were the day that you would choose to return, we would be ready. Father, I pray that you would help us to live that out, not just saying, yes, I said a prayer, but every day moving forward, I pray that you would help us to live as those who are passionately seeking you above all else. Help us to be that New Testament church that constantly had our eyes fixed on the prize, knowing that there is more to hope for than what we receive in this life. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, maybe today you would say, Pastor, I want that forgiveness of sins. I don't have it right now. If the Lord were to come back, I am not ready. I want to be able to pray for you. If that's you, would you just raise your hand real quick? I want to pray for you. Father, I pray right now that you would help us to all be ready. Forgive us of our sin. As we confess, not necessarily to everybody else in the room, as we confess to you, I pray that you would forgive our sin. Make us new today. Fill us with your spirit and allow us to live as those who are readily and constantly being transformed into your image. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us. I know that in the second service, we'll have some other guests that will be coming as well. I am grateful for each of you. Thank you for your support of not only the Wiggins family, but this church as we continue to move forward. I believe very firmly that the, the best days of the church are actually ahead of the church. But a part of it is because of the foundation that others have already laid. Thank you for being with us today. Go in peace. Come back for lunch.